Hello and welcome back to the Beyond Words podcast with me, Michelle Adams. This week I am taking you on a mystery that is inspired by the flannel isles in the Outer Hebrides. I'd like you to imagine for a moment three lighthouse keepers dedicated and um, committed to their job, living on a small island and manning the lighthouse. When the relief boat goes to find them, weeks after their departure, they encounter a locked door, dinners on the table untouched, tea going cold in the cups, clocks all stopped on the walls, and the lighthouse keepers nowhere to be seen. It appears that they have vanished without a trace. And it is this story that inspired this week's author, Emma Stonex, to write The Lamplighters. Emma is um, a seasoned professional in this industry. She used to work as an editor at one of the biggest publishing houses and has since gone on to be a writer um, working under a pseudonym. But this this book this year, The Lamplighters, is the first book that she has written under her own name. I had the pleasure to read this book uh, earlier on this year and it is a book that just completely swept me up in the mystery. Um, at times, just reading, thinking, how is this How is this based on a true story? How can there possibly be a resolution to this sort of locked room mystery? But it's also much more than that. It's an exploration of um, human nature, um, things that um, drive us, the secrets that we keep, and how our own individual lives can lead to what is undoubtedly one of the um, most interesting unresolved mysteries in um, in British history. So it's with great pleasure that I um, um, recorded this conversation with Emma Stonex. Uh, I hope that you enjoy it and will stop wasting any more time and get straight over into this week's conversation. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it must be really tough when, when you're a first-time author because you do have this level of expectation, um, which is kind of naivety at the beginning because it's just like, oh, yeah. I'm going to publish, it's going to be brilliant. And the weird thing yeah. is that they haven't... So for the first few weeks when the Lamplighters came out, and you may have found this as well, Little Wishes, there were no volume numbers. Nielsen couldn't provide any sales figures. Yes, yeah. And you know, yeah. So you're like, oh, you have no real idea about how yeah. it's doing. It's all yeah. so... Um, nebulous and strange but you hit the bestseller list didn't you I did in the times yeah yeah which is amazing congratulations thanks yeah that was completely weird and I don't really um understand like it's still I, I think the times charts based just on waterstones so I'm slightly I have no idea because so Sunday times is all of it so it's waterstones supermarket smiths everything amazon um, but Times is just Waterstones, I think. So I've been on that list, but my Waterstone sales, at least for the last couple of weeks, haven't been very good. So I okay. don't know why it's maybe other people's have, have been even lower than that. I don't know, but I'm, it's a bit yeah. of a mystery to me, but I'll take it. Like, I'm more than yeah, absolutely. It. Yeah. yeah. It's just another strange um, kink in the publishing fabric. I don't really get it, but I'm happy to happy to have it. <laughs> And I mean, you must understand these these strange oddities of the publishing world because you worked in it from the other side to start with. 
is that right? You're you're an editor. Yeah. So I did. So I used to work um, at Little Brown Book Group, which was then Time Warner Book Group. About oh, we're going back a long time now, maybe fourteen years ago. And um, I worked on commercial fiction there, um, but I always knew that I wanted to write. I mean, I'm sure you did. I think all authors say it, but that's because it's true that you, you yeah. just always wanted to write. And since I was yeah. little, I'd be doodling stories and stapling them together and drawing my barcodes on the back and all the stuff that we do. That's um, adorable that you put barcodes on them. You? <laughs> I, no, but I, I did do very fancy covers. <laughs> You were obviously destined to go into publishing first, (laughs) so you got that side of it. (laughs) I had the commercial awareness early on. My mum used to design my covers for me. I used to imitate. I um, love that. Do you remember Point Horror? Yes. And Sweet Valley High books. And my mum would like. um, She's an artist, so she would try and copy those styles of covers. Oh, how wonderful! Have terrible titles like Under the Bed and you know, like awful (laughs) things like that. Anyway, I've I've gone off the point. Yeah, so um, I think working in publishing has given me a really nice grounding because yeah. I understand that books succeed or fail on a vast array of factors and yeah. very few of them are anything to do with the author or the book that you've written. They're yeah. all beyond your control. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes great books do really, really well. Sometimes they don't. And you have to sort of try and wear it lightly, I think, as an author, because it can feel so personal and so all-consuming. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's given me quite a nice a nice way of going into it as an author. Do you think it made you more pragmatic as an author, that you knew that no matter how good a book you might write at any given time, that there were so many factors that would depend upon its success? Mm, yeah, I think so. Um yeah, I mean, like, before I worked in publishing, I had this idea that authors delivered the most immaculate first draft and they just had this incredible talent that meant that it was impeccable from the outset and editors yes. had very little. They just put a beautiful cover on it and put it out there, which, of course, is completely false. And a lot of the yes. time, even very established, successful authors would deliver a first draft that was very rough and full of yes. holes. And that's what editors are there for. And that's fine. Yes. Um, and it taught me really that what you need to be an author is a really good idea and the stamina and self-determination to sit down and slog out 90,000 words. And if you can do that on your good idea, you are more than halfway there. Um, so it was, it sort of, publishing sort of made me realize that authors are ordinary people and this is a job that requires hard work like any other job and you don't have to be a genius to be an author and you don't have to be flawless to be an author you can be very flawed um and that was quite nice because it made me think yeah I I could I could actually do this I could try and do this myself that's probably the most perfect and concise answer that I've ever heard someone say that you just need to be able to finish the book and that the rest of it will come that's that's such helpful advice, I think, for anyone that's listening to this who is a who is a writer but isn't agented or published and and are looking to get there. Yeah. Just to know that, that it doesn't have to be polished or perfect. It just has to have something of a good story and the determination to see it through. Exactly. And, and it's funny because we were talking just now about um even if you've written many books before, you can still become completely unstuck on number 93. Like you learn yes. all these ways of doing things, but yes. each book presents its own challenge. Um, and 
and yeah, I mean, I'm struggling with the book I'm writing at the moment. And so I, I would do well to listen to the advice that I've just given, which is just to get it down. Because until yes. you've got that, that body of words down, you don't know your parameters. I think of it sometimes like um, sculpting something. So before you begin a first draft, you would just have a lump of clay. And your first job is just to just carve into it, get some kind of shape, get rid of the material that you don't want, just bash it into something that roughly resembles what you're what it's going to eventually be and then you can start chiseling the detail and I do have quite a, a, a bad habit I think um, of trying to perfect the wording and the sentence level detail before I have that shape um, and I'm still learning whether I can do a what some of my friends call a dirty draft where you just yes. race through it and get it all down and I can I can completely see why that's a sensible thing to do but I wrestle sometimes with my own leaning towards perfectionism because I do yes. kind of want to make something beautiful before it really is something if you know what I mean. I lean probably a little bit like that as well and I, I go through periods when I do just write what you'd just call a dirty draft but then I can't help myself but to step back and say well I'll just work on this bit a little bit and I think sometimes doing that actually helps me see where I'm going, who the character is and how they feel and how they think. So I think whatever method you use, as long as it works for you and you get there in the end, either way you can yeah. work. Yeah. And it's funny because if I feel that I haven't done that, the writing thus far is not very good quality. Sometimes it makes me think, well, what am I building this on? The foundations are so yes. rocky. Am I actually yes. going to reach where I need to be? So it, maybe it is striking that balance not obsessing too deeply about exactly how it sounds but having just enough for you to feel excited about what you're producing yes. in order to carry on because you get to 40 50 000 words and I find that's the trickiest part for me because you're in the middle of it you set it all up all the excitement as as you sort of put it out there and now you have to start solving problems and guiding the reader towards the end and that's a real period of uncertainty for me Periods of uncertainty, I think, are definitely something that every writer has to contend with, be it in manuscripts, between manuscripts, during publication. But for yourself, when you worked in publishing, when you took that leap to leave publishing and work solely as a writer, it, how, did, how did that feel? Did that feel like an uncertain decision or did you feel this is absolutely the right thing for me now? This is what I need to do. I definitely felt it was the right thing. I knew it was a risk. I had an agent at that point, but I didn't have a book deal. Um, luckily, um, I when I left my job in publishing, I had lots of contacts who were able to send freelance editing work my way. So I sort of financed myself by doing that while I finished a manuscript and we sent it out on submission. But it was right. a leap of faith because I didn't have that in place. Um, and, and actually, even when I did get a book deal, it, it wasn't for a great deal of money. So I carried on working at the same time to um, to sustain that. Yeah. Um, but I think the main thing was that I knew, even if that book didn't go anywhere, that the move to become a writer was definitely the right one. I never doubted that yeah. for a moment. And to try. I'm a great believer that you regret what you don't do. Um, yes. You, you know, that even if it hadn't worked out, I fully would have stood by the reasons and my yeah. thinking behind that move. Um, and because I had always wanted to write and I sort of thought I might try and write a book later in life. It just didn't really seem like a realistic 
job when I was a young woman because it didn't feel yeah. it felt too good to be true I guess it felt like a dream job I needed to yeah. work between nine and five in an office it needed to be a proper job and yeah. <laughs> um and we know that writing is not necessarily those things um but yeah I knew that the the love of writing and the desire to write my own books would never go away so seize the day and can you remember that final moment when you said I'm doing it can you remember that because I think often we we toy with the idea and then there's that that moment you say that's it I'm doing it now can you remember that final push um I don't know if I can remember the exact moment I think what I do remember really clearly is leaving the office and stepping out of it and really feeling like I was stepping not just out of the office but towards where I wanted to be yeah and it was a great great sense of adventure and excitement um and funnily I think what I do really remember is um I wrote several books under pseudonyms but I always wanted to write The Lamplighters and I told my agent about it when I met when I first met her for the very first time back in 2010 and I do really remember coming to the end of my contract under this pseudonym and the publisher asking if I'd like another book. Um, and my agent saying to me, no, you need to write The Lighthouse now. This is the time. This is it. Let's do it. And I remember that really clearly and the huge sense of elation and adrenaline that I felt when we agreed that now was the time. That was a really special moment. That's really interesting because it sounds to me like the lamplighters had been something that had been there for a long time. And I got that impression from your acknowledgements as well, that that it had been there in the background. It was a passion project that you'd wanted to write and it just hadn't quite come together into the into the state that you needed to to get it to to be the book for for, for publication. So when did this project first come to you? And how did you know now was the time? Um, it came to me really when I first read about the Flannan Isles vanishing. Um, so to listeners who haven't heard, it's um, the amazing disappearance of three lighthouse keepers from the Outer Hebrides in Scotland in 1900. So over 120 years ago, um, a relief boat went to the island to relieve one of the keepers and found it completely empty. This is a really remote setting. Um, off the coast and these men had been manning the light for several weeks and one of them was supposed to be collected and yeah the boat arrived and no one was there and there were these really strange details I think that was what captivated me the most the door the entrance door was locked the clocks inside the lighthouse had stopped it almost sounds like a fairy tale like Goldilocks or yeah. something and yeah. with coupled with the atmosphere of the lighthouse and all that lighthouses symbolize and the great majesty and mystery of the sea for a writer there's it's just so rich with themes um and as soon as I read about that and I read about it in a magazine and it just it just got me by the throat and I carried on writing other books over several years because as you rightly said I just didn't have I didn't know the way into the story yeah. And what I really wanted to do was know enough about lighthouse life to present that occupation with some authenticity rather than the slightly romantic or nostalgic idea of lighthouse keeping that we might, many of us have. And I certainly had yeah. before I started researching yeah. it. Um, whereas in actual fact, it was a really difficult, isolated, emotionally and mentally challenging life 
for families yeah. as well as the lighthouse keepers. That's so exactly what I was just going to say for the families as well. You know, like that, that through your book really came to me that it, this was difficult for the men on the on the light, but actually for the families left behind, it was really just as torturous. Yeah, hugely. And it's strange because the lighthouse service would provide accommodation for families, for keepers and their families. So quite often. Um, as in the lamplighters, there's a tower lighthouse, which is one that comes straight up out of the sea. And the families are housed right on the headland on, in these provisional cottages. So they can see the lighthouse out in the distance and they can see its light turning at night. And yet they can't reach their loved ones. Um, and the book is set in, well, the lighthouse part of the book is set in 1972, when, of course, there was no social media, no mobile phones, no way of yeah. reaching these people at all. And yet they're just there, just beyond reach. Um, so all of this just massively spoke to me as as really fertile ground for a novel and a reimagining of that incredible vanishing. Um, and yet never left me until I decided to finally sit down and start in 2018. So you started to write it in 2018. And actually, how long I did that... it was 20, it was 2017, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And how long did it take you to get to the point where you thought, I've I've got the story now? Well, I'd read so much about lighthouses that when I sat down to write, these voices just I mean, I sound like I'm like I'm channeling spirits, but those voices just kind of came <laughs> out. And it was as though they were telling the story, which is exactly what I wanted. I, I, yeah. I wasn't the lighthouse keeper. I didn't want to sort of muscle my way into that. Um, and lighthouse keeping as a way of life was quite guarded, al almost a bit Masonic, I suppose, in a way. Um, a bit like being in the army, that it, yeah. it's quite shielded and, and protected. And the people who lived in it um, were often quite secretive about their lives and quite cut yeah. off from everybody else so I wanted it, it to be a story told from the inside out um which is why those voices worked I think um and yeah I knew early on how I wanted to resolve the mystery or at least the resolution I wanted to offer readers whether or not they agree is another thing um and then it was just a case of steering the ship towards that conclusion um, and I went down many, many dead ends <laughs> in the process <laughs> of that, and the process of about 14 or 15 drafts, I think, in the end. Um, but yes, I, I think the voices, once they clicked into place, then the story was almost there for me. And it must have been quite difficult to navigate the real story with the story that you were creating. So how did you go about weaving in the facts of the story that you've alluded to on the islands where the keepers were lost with the story that you created in your imagination well I wanted to put some distance between the real story and mine um, and that was mainly a question of sensitivity I think because these were real men who vanished and presumably died and real yeah. families who have suffered and lived with uncertainty and of course still now generations on these families still don't know what happened to those men yeah. so it didn't feel right for me to attempt to retell it um, I certainly wouldn't have used the men's names, but even setting it in 1900, even setting it in Scotland felt a little bit close. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't want to blur the boundary between facts and fiction. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to use this as a sort of platform, but completely reimagine it. And a yeah. lot of the literature I read about lighthouses um, focused on the 1970s anyway. So that felt like a really natural fit. 
Um, And it was also a very interesting period in lighthouse keeping because it was the decade preceding automation. So it was just before the lighthouses all went electric and there was a sense of the wick burning out and that that lifestyle was coming to an end. I thought that would be quite interesting for the characters. But then it was also in terms of location, um, the real vanishing happened on an island lighthouse. So there was a, there was land around the lighthouse where these men went missing. But I thought, how could I make that even more extreme and have a tower lighthouse where there is yes. nowhere else for the men to be? They come out the entrance door yes. and the sea is at their feet. If yes. they're not in there, where are they? Where are they? Um, so that that sort of really spoke to me. I love the towers as well. I think they really, they give me a real shiver up my spine, the towers. Um, so yes, I think to answer your question, it was just about putting that distance between what really happened and my imagining, but using the really tantalizing details like the stopped clocks and the locked door um, to kind of fire up the mystery. And it is, it is a real mystery. I didn't know anything about this story before I came across your book. And I didn't realise in the beginning that it was a fictional tale of what had happened. So as soon as I read the first sort of introduction, I thought, okay, this is a tale based on that. But immediately I wanted to go back and read what had happened in in reality. Um, And so there must have been for you a lot of research in order to understand, one, the story and the way that that was investigated at the time, which is obviously a very different time, you know, hundreds or so years ago, but also about the lighthouse lifestyle and the way that that affected the men who went there and the families left behind. So how did you go about approaching what must have been vast research? Mm. Um, Well, I researched the book over many years and, and it didn't feel like research with a capital R because I wasn't thinking, right, I'm going to start this book in six months. What can I read in the six month period to kind of get to grips with it it was very organic I I sort of drawn to certain books um I read everything from technical manuals about like how lighthouses work which ordinarily I'm hopeless at things like that I don't have a scientific brain but I'm so fascinated with lighthouses that I was really keen to understand how was the wick lit and how do lenses rotate and I just loved it I really got into it Um, But what really interested me were the memoirs of these lighthouse keepers and hearing their voices and imagining, reading between the lines, imagining how that mindset might affect um, a woman who they were married to or children they had. Um, There's a wonderful book by Tony Parker, who was an oral historian, and he interviewed lighthouse keepers. And again, you get this brilliant sense for me, which is, the ordinary wisdom that comes from just normal people, but when they're met with extraordinary circumstances, how, how, just you and I, how do we survive? How do ordinary people survive strange things that happen in our lives? How do we survive uncertainty? How do we survive not knowing the truth about something? How deep do we have to dig to find ways to move on in our lives? And that really interested me. Um, so I wanted to get that ordinary voice, those ordinary voices across in the book. Yeah, it, it has a real it has a real human heartbeat to it, this novel, because even though we're talking about something historical, it feels almost present day. The problems that they're experiencing could be problems that somebody's experiencing now. Mm. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I think I mean, it is it's a book about lighthouses, but it's a book about humanity, I think. Um and of course, so much of humanity is epitomized by 
lighthouses it sounds sort of trite to say it but the light and dark places the, yeah. the reaching out the hope the places of safety on on dark waters yeah. it's so powerful and even just the fact of these lighthouses having been built they were built hundreds of years ago on treacherous reefs in the middle of angry oceans mm. and many many people died in in the building of them and for example the Edison lighthouse off the coast of Plymouth is um, the fourth manifestation built on that site the first three were washed away so you know years and years of work just washed away in a storm but the effort persevered to save yeah. people's lives and make passage of ships safer and I just think it's such a wonderful testament to human endeavor and and kindness and grit and all these things come into the lamplighters I hope in a way so it does kind of yeah I'm hoping that there's a strong sense of humanity that comes through that as well um, in respect of the lighthouses. It does come through very much in your characters as well. You said these voices came to you and that they became the sort of the key to telling the story. But how how did those characters develop? Because they feel they feel very rich and they feel very real. Well, I think the other interesting thing about the 1970s was that it was the lighthouse service was attracting a much broader um, range of men from a much broader range of backgrounds so traditionally lighthouse keeping would be for men with a nautical tradition in their families but in the 70s with the social mobility of that decade you might have men like Vince who'd been in prison say and actually enjoyed living on a tower light because it was a confined space and they were used to yeah. confined spaces and used to the very regimented way of life that actually lighthouse keeping and, and being in prison had in common um, you might get men who've been lorry drivers or, or university students so a great variety of people were attracted to these lighthouses and that gave me lots to play with in the characters so I knew I wanted to have this guy from the wrong side of the tracks who's Vince and he's been in prison and he's had a troubled lifestyle and I love the idea of somebody who's never felt that they've belonged anywhere and that actually the lighthouse to him represented finally belonging somewhere yeah. um and arthur the principal keeper of the lamplighters that his character came to me really early because again i i wanted somebody who had dedicated their whole lives to the service but for whom the onset or the imminence of automation was a really terrifying prospect because after that happened who was he what did he have left yes. he'd given everything yes. to the lighthouses um so again that was I like the contrast between those two and then Bill the assistant is a sort of middleman and he describes himself at one point I think as an in-between man which taps into this idea I have about lighthouses that they're not in either place they're not land and they're not sea they're just on the horizon between the sky and the earth they exist in this liminal space and I think for me Bill kind of taps into that part of my fascination with lighthouses that they are neither one nor the other so between those three men I felt that I'd sort of wrote together all the things that I find really fascinating about these structures. That's so interesting to hear you talk about them because they're all such different characters as well and tell a tale where they were all affected by the same event and how their interactions played out together it was lovely. Thank you so much and then their partners as well so there's Arthur and Bill have wives and Vince has a girlfriend and just how how the choices that these men made affected 
these women and then the women's interactions with each other initially before I started the lamplighters I was just going to tell the story of the men I had this idea that I would write quite a narrow tower-like novel full of claustrophobia and cabin fever and tell it all from inside this lighthouse but the more I thought about the women the more they crept into the story and they have actually ended up becoming the most important characters I think in many ways um, so integral so integral and also to mm. have the contrast with the land as well it felt like I did need I think just telling it from a tower would be a great short story or a great poem but I think for a novel I needed to have that contrast with the land as well yeah yeah definitely the two landscapes definitely add a different element to the story and they breaking the claustrophobia brings a much wider reasoning behind the events exactly um and I love the idea as well of, of the land life becoming, for some of these keepers, uh, an intimidating thing. They might feel at home and easy on the tower. And in contrast, the land life is too chaotic. It's too confusing. They can't slot into it because the keepers would be away on a lighthouse for eight weeks and then home for four and then back for eight and home for four. So most of their lives were spent on these lighthouses. Yeah. So when they came back into real life, they'd have to sort of slot in to a home they perhaps didn't feel they quite belonged in. Um, and it was only ever temporary. And if they had children, they'd come home and they'd suddenly be the man of the house and the father, but actually they might not have, they might not have known their children very well, or they'd have missed yeah. out on great, you know strides in their children's development and personalities yeah so it must have been a really odd odd sort of in between not quite occupying one or the other sort of state it's kind of a a, a small taste of of what we've been going through over the last 12 months suddenly all finding ourselves at home and not knowing how to balance around each other and how to have our own routine amongst people that we're not usually working alongside or trying to be a a mother at the same time as working and oh god I know I know and it's really really odd because I I started writing this book as we said in in 2017 so long before the pandemic um but then when I was editing um in 2020 in the first lockdown these words were coming out at me like quarantine and loneliness and seclusion and these yeah. were words I was hearing on the radio while I was editing I was like this is just really odd and I think over the last 18 months we've all become lighthouse keepers in some ways you know my husband's been working from home since it started um and we've had to like find a way of making that work and then when the children were at home and there was homeschooling to be done yeah that around it's really intense actually and I think for these lighthouse keepers what what they had was a way of completely separating the different parts of their lives they'd have their home life with their family or their partner and they'd have their lighthouse life with their male friends or, or male colleagues they weren't always friends of course yeah um but it's a, it was a very segregated life in that way the boundaries were very clear um whereas for us at the moment I guess that's the difference is that there are no boundaries we're just all yeah side together. all on top of each other trying to trying to muddle through yeah I have dreamed of being on a lighthouse though I've just dreamed of getting away sometimes like getting to the sea but also just having quiet and, and peace. Yes. So I think these yes. lighthouse keepers did have a lot of, and the time, because they'd sit up in the lantern in the middle of the night and just that huge sense of solitude, I can, yeah, it just makes me feel a bit funny, but I find it quite appealing actually. <laughs> 
I think for the job that we do as writers, you do need a degree of solitude. And you also, I mean, there are some writers maybe that can work in coffee shops or what have you, but that's not the kind of writer I am. I don't write yourself. Um, but I think you also have to like the solitude. Mm. Yeah, you do. And luckily, I have always liked solitude. Um which is fortunate because as you say, you know, you spend a lot of time on your own when you're writing a book. And I'm like you, I can't, I love the idea of working in a cafe and I have edited in a cafe when it's been sort of um, surface level edits where I haven't had to dive too deeply into my imagination. Yeah. But when I do have to do that sort of work, that intense work, I have to be on my own. I can't even listen to music anymore. I used to put music no, on the same. I can't do it now at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The habits that we get into and, and what changes um but yeah I think it is difficult in in the pandemic it has been really hard to find that mental space and that creative space and for it to last long enough to get momentum into your writing at the moment I'm snatching half an hour here half an hour there um trying to get something done before going to school to pick up my daughter and that's difficult as well because you do yeah. need to sink into something and for it to kind of um for you to be immersed in it for a while I think. Are there certain routines that you try to maintain as a writer that that help that creative process? Um, I did before I had children I had some lovely routines <laughs> now they've just <laughs> all gone out the window. I think the main thing I mean I try and work um, try and work in the mornings where I can because I find that the most productive time for me personally um, but for me it's just checking in on on my work in progress every single day if I don't do that, it starts to build up in my mind as something really powerful and intimidating. Yeah. And I get afraid to open the door on it. There's a great essay by Annie Dillard. I don't know if you've read it about, no. about that thing in particular, where she talks about how the work in progress is a wild animal in a, in a room. And you have to just look in on it every day and remind it who's in charge. Otherwise, it starts to grow in your imagination and you become too afraid to go anywhere near it. And I do oh, think I have to find friends. that. Yeah, it's called On Writing or The Writing Life. Is it The Writing Life? Yes, The Writing Life by Annie Dillard. And it's brilliant. Um, yeah, and, and that is very much how I feel. So I think if I had any ritual, it would just be to make sure that I, I keep reminding it who's boss. And are the books like that, other books that you have been inspired by, be them either fiction or non-fiction essays on, on writing that have helped shape who you are as a writer? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm interested in how much of creative writing can be taught and learned and how much techniques can help an author. I think techniques in terms of your writing habits and that can be quite helpful, but I, I don't know about how much writing can be taught. I'm not sure. I'm sort of on the fence about that. For me, it's just practicing writing showing it to people having feedback I learned so much in the lamplighters I had an absolutely brilliant editor Picador and she just didn't let me get away with anything so all the stuff that I got away with in my previous book she didn't let me get away with and I knew that those were bad habits that I'd fallen into in my writing yeah. and I learned so much from editing the lamplighters with her um, that I think yeah I think the feedback you can get from readers is probably the most important thing in shaping you as an author. And would that be your advice to somebody who is trying to make it as a writer, who's trying to get an agent or a publisher is to get feedback? 
I think so. I've always been really private about my first drafts. I don't know what how you feel, but I'm always hesitant to show people until I at least have a body of work that I don't feel embarrassed by. <laughs> Um, the same. <laughs> whereas I know people who very sensibly show scrappy drafts to people and get feedback and then improve them and mm. so on and that works that works for them um but I'm just sort of too private about it I think to begin with but really that's the only way you're going to get that rounded view of it and with the lamplighters I tied myself in so many knots trying to get a first draft together that in the end my friend just said to me look give it to me just show it to me she's an author as well and I did, and that was just like the key to the whole thing because I felt, I don't know, it was like I just let some of it go, like I let the pressure go. It was yeah. sitting on my shoulders and I gave it to her and it didn't feel like such a big deal anymore. Um, and so there's a lot to be said for that. So I'd say to aspiring writers, if you can share it and have the confidence to share it, it's such a vulnerable feeling um, and it can be really scary. But ultimately, if you if you do want to be a published author, you have to take that risk and and it, it helps you develop that resilience that you do need because when you are a published author there's always going to be someone who doesn't want to buy your book there's always going to be some reader that doesn't like your book so having those comments back when you are developing your craft mm. it helps you become who you're going to need to be when you are published mm. it really does um but then I'd also say that I have shown books to friends in the past before they've been published and I think I made a mistake once of showing too many people and that then confused me so it's a fine balance I think I think it's really important to hold tight to what you want the book to be and how you feel about the book yeah. um, and give it to a trusted maybe two or three readers who you really trust and whose opinions you really value um once yeah as I say once I gave mine to about 10 people which was a really bad idea I think this was my fourth or fifth book and then I just became completely confused because one said, oh, I love this character and I love this when it happens. And this, another person would say, oh, I hated that bit. And yeah. of course, like as you say, that's the nature of being published. You're going to get such different opinions. Yes. All that matters at the end of it is how you feel about that character and whether you like it. Um, and as you say, when when you are published, you will get all sorts of feedback and some of it will sting. Yeah. You know, it's the very best writers can have scathing feedback and it's just yes. part of of the game and it's part of um everything being online now that you know people can say really hurtful things because there's the anonymity of the internet yes. uh but just like putting anything created out there if you're proud of it the rest of it is, is just noise I think well the lamplighters is certainly something that you should be very proud of I think um if my opinion counts for anything I just thought it was a fabulous book I whizzed through it I listened to the audiobook actually oh, and I thought you? that it was yeah I thought it was so fabulously narrated I I got completely lost in it and if you are able to now share some of it with the listeners mm -hmm. that would be great Thank you so much. Your opinion means a lot to me Michelle so that's oh, really a lot. Thank that's you. That's very kind. Thank you. Um, so I'll just read a short passage from the beginning of chapter three, which uh, takes place when the relief boat has found the Maiden Rock empty and a boat of investigators is sent to access the tower. Right. The landing takes hours. A dozen men scale the dog steps with a taste on their tongues like salt and fear, their ears raw and their hands bloody and frozen. When they reach the door, it is locked from the inside. 
a slab of steel built to resist crashing seas and hurricane winds must now be broken by brawn and bars. Afterwards, one of the men gets the shakes, the bad white shakes, which is partly exhaustion and partly the worm of disquiet that has clung to him since Jury Martin's relief boat went unmet, since Trident House told them, get out there. Three of them enter the tower. Inside it is dark and there is a musty, lived-in smell, symptomatic of the sea stations with their battened shut windows. There's not a lot to see in the storeroom, bulky shapes masked by the gloom, coils of rope, a life belt, a dinghy suspended upside down. Nothing is disturbed. The keeper's oilskins hang in the shadows like hooked fish. Their names are called through a manhole in the ceiling, sent spiralling up the staircase. Arthur, Bill, Vincent, are you there, Bill? It's eerie how their living voices cut through silence, the silence robust, indecently loud. The men don't expect a response. Trident told them this was search and rescue, but it is a mission for bodies. Any thoughts they had about the keepers escaping are gone. The door was locked. They're here, somewhere inside. How wonderful, how wonderful to hear you listen, to hear you read it. That's just Thank great. You. And of course, they're not somewhere inside. And so it begins. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a fabulous mystery. Um, you just don't know what to expect. And I kept, I didn't know how the, the real mystery was solved, the, the, the real events. And so when I was reading your book and I kept thinking, how is, how is this? How is this going to be solved? I had no idea. You take the reader on such a wonderful ride and it's out now so people can go and get it. Um, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you, Michelle. It's been a pleasure.